0: The way in which we operate is defined, in large part, by our memories. Memory is a core component of the human identity.
1: In this show, we hope to explore the nuances of this fundamental aspect of our brains.
0: These conversations aim to illustrate the strengths, weaknesses, and mysteries surrounding remembering and forgetting. I'm Tanner Chalet.
1: And I'm Isabel Nieves.
0: And this is Remembering and Forgetting, a podcast by Themester. Memory is more than the recollections of the individual. Monumental events are able to transcend one person's consciousness and become a harrowing fixture in the minds of an entire society. Less than a century ago, a cruel and unfeeling dictatorship led by Adolf Hitler resulted in the torture and murder of millions of European Jews, among other minorities. A tragedy such as this is able to define a people, a nation, and a world. It is because of the memory of the Holocaust and its survivors that we remain aware of where hatred can lead. I had a chance to speak with Mark Roseman, professor of history and Pat M. Glazier Chair of Jewish Studies at IU, in order to ask some of the questions that arise from a topic like this. How does one reconcile the memory of their fallen family, of their lost culture? How do we remember the pitfalls of a hateful empire like Nazi Germany in order to avoid them? How can someone find power in the most powerless of situations? And in an age rife with denial and skepticism, how can we bring the truth to light? When dealing with monumental events like the Holocaust, the biggest events are often the most easily remembered. Can you share a smaller, perhaps more personal memory of the Holocaust that has struck you through your research?
1: Yes, and I think you're... Uh, Onto something very important there because I think it's often the small details that bring the big thing alive. Uh, So I'll just give you one example. I talked to a survivor uh, who uh, remembered uh, that uh, her parents, who in the end didn't manage to get out of Germany but were hoping hoping, uh, that they would be able to get out of Germany uh, alive uh, to Sweden, uh, sent their suits. Um uh Along to Sweden, because if they got out then they'd have to uh, work there and just the thought of these uh, thoughtful thinking individuals planning for the best while fearing the for the worst was for me enormously powerful because it instead of just thinking about people as nameless victims it uh, it brought them to life as as people who were thinking and planning, and as long as they had any agency we would say uh exercising that that agency and it's those small details trivial though they obviously are uh that uh, that i find so powerful
0: so kind of how they were able to maintain hope in pretty much the most dire of circumstances uh that is really powerful and especially considering that they didn't end up making it out they were still able to have
1: physical entities of hope it's it's maintaining hope but it's also that They're not powerless until they're powerless in other words that they're still able to make choices they're still able to make decisions in this case they had a bit of money so they were able to make that money work and get these things uh, sent out so it's actually not just thinking about abject powerless individuals but thinking about people who as long as it's possible are making choices uh, and making decisions and and in some ways it's even more painful because uh, you you identify with the, with them more in the in the predicament, but it also humanizes them and 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 stops them being simply uh, nameless victims.
0: It's kind of an interesting discrepancy that you see with media depicting the Holocaust. You often see victims being completely disenfranchised, often herded like cattle, which of course is a reality of what they went through. But also, it's interesting to think of them as still having agency, like you said, still making choices to protect and benefit themselves. That does make it a lot more human, because that's what any of us would try and do if we were in a similar circumstance.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And of course, it is a very, there, there are a number of difficult moral choices that one has in thinking about how to present this, because on the one hand, one thing that is absolutely intrinsic to genocide is that the people who are being killed are powerless. We, you don't get genocide where the group that uh, that is being attacked is able to defend itself. So powerlessness, uh, powerlessness is a precondition of genocide. So on that side, it's not at all unreasonable to think about the, the victims as not having power. That's That's why they're this kind of victim. That's mm-hmm. why genocide is thinkable. On the other hand, within that general framework, people are still living, thinking beings Sometimes they may be able to evade. Sometimes they may be able to hide. Sometimes they may be able to send a last letter. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they may be able to protect a child. There's, and, until the very last, they're still, they're still making choices. So the balance is to find that, that sort of right middle ground between acknowledging massive discrepancies in power mm-hmm. and at the same time recalling that, uh, that, that they're not simply passive.
0: Yeah, it's kind of as if the societal power is what they lack, the institutional power perhaps, but they retain the personal power and the ability to communicate, to make themselves be heard and known any way they can. And I think that really does add a layer of depth to the understanding of the Holocaust and its victims.
1: I think that's very nicely put.
0: Thank you. Uh, You know this probably better than anyone, um, but the horrors experienced by the survivors of the Holocaust and also similar tragedies can be penetrating and life-defining. How have you experienced survivors that you've talked with dealing with the memories and trying to move past the memories while also trying to keep them alive, trying to keep them within them and you know, power them in a certain way?
1: I think that there are as many different ways of responding as there are uh, survivors uh, of, of genocide. So in that sense, there is no one pattern. Um, when we talk about memory, of course we often mean at least two different things. One thing is what the individual carries within them of their former experience that still uh, can be summoned within their psyche. And the other thing is a sort of larger communal uh, phenomenon whereby past events are recalled or celebrated or feared but have some presence in uh, in a later culture. and the individual uh, recalling their experience influences that and is influenced by that larger pattern. It goes both ways. On the one hand, our awareness of the Holocaust clearly draws powerfully on what we've learned from what survivors have said. Their memories has fed into our knowledge. In that sense, their memory becomes ours. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the larger Uh, way in which a society deals with its past influences also how individuals relate to their own past experience and so you know when there are uh, when, for example, there are very strong pressures uh, not to uh, dwell on the past, that may well influence the way in which individuals think about their experience. In the 1950s and 1960s, there was much less conversation about the Holocaust. That really came later. And so at that point, you could say that a lot of uh, survivors, their emphasis really was on finding their feet making it and not necessarily uh, drawing on the past although of course the memory of the lo- loved ones they lost never disappeared with time however uh, and that's really the it's really the more the later context which which is the the background to your question it's become not only important for survivors themselves to hold on to that loss, but it's also become something that we've valued and, and whose significance we appreciate. And it becomes a way in which, in old age, survivors can communicate uh, with, with the wider world. So I think that's you know that's a very particular moment in relation to this very particular tragedy. Uh, that we're in. And of course, I think it's very important. And, and it's also wonderful for people who've suffered so much to actually find now that they, what they've gone through has been valorized uh, and, and that people really want to to hear what it is that's, that's, that's happened to them.
0: I do think that's really encouraging. Just today, actually, we happen to be sitting in the studio on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which is an interesting coincidence. But um, I actually did see a uh, tweet from a survivor of the Holocaust who was celebrating the anniversary, who stated it was a monumental victory for the allies, which led to her escape from the camp that she was at. Um, So it is interesting to think about survivors themselves being treated in the same way that veterans are, as people who led to the victory in the war, as people who persevered. And I think it's fitting, because in much of the same way that veterans are, they had to deal with the trauma, the violence and the loss that they have to as well.
1: No, I think, that's a, I think that's a very good point. And I actually think it's not always easy to know how to balance talking about the war and talking about the Holocaust. And that's true in lots of different contexts. So, for example, in, in Germany... Um, how far are you allowed to talk about the impact of the war on Germany and how far do you have to focus on the holocaust mm-hmm. or is it possible I mean there are also moral questions raised by uh, what, do you, what do you focus on um, and I think uh, uh, we have to in the, in the early post-war decades the holocaust was really dwarfed by memory of the war uh, I think sometime in the 90s or uh, the 2000s, the Holocaust got almost bigger than the war. And the problem with that, although it's understandable because of the specific characteristics of the Holocaust, the problem with that is that it then loses sight, I think, of what was important for the Allies and the and participants at the time. Clearly winning the war was their absolute objective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, getting that balance also analytically uh, right between remembering war and remembering Holocaust is, is not is important, but not easy.
0: And that's probably especially true in Germany. I know you have experience teaching and researching in Germany, mm-hmm. and I wanted to ask how modern Germans reconcile the memory of their country's role in the Holocaust and in the war at large with the guilt and anxiety they may feel today.
1: I mean, you know, obviously it's now, uh, we're now, as, as you said, 75 years uh, after D-Day. That means that we've had at least three generations uh, that have come into the world in Germany since then. And not only that, but Germany has also gone through massive transformations and uh, uh, the two separate parts, East Germany and West Germany, uh, have uh, uh, been brought together to create uh, the, the, un- the reunited Germany that, uh, that, uh, that we see now. Um, and so I think Uh, one can't simply talk about Germany then uh, Holocaust, Germany now post-Holocaust the fact is that it's gone through a whole series of stages of uh, responding to the past and so much so that there's probably a generation going through uh, school uh, and now out of school who are reacting against a generation that was reacting against its parents who hadn't done enough Mm -hmm. Um, and so in that sense Um, One's one's looking at a a whole series of different constituencies. Clearly, there's always been a strand within Germany that resented uh, having to be held accountable and and show responsibility. Um, The weight of that strand diminished for a long time. Uh, It's possible that it's getting stronger again, certainly as part of the a much broader sort of nationalist backlash against uh, what the cosmopolitanism of liberal elites i mean that 's something you can see in the u s mm-hmm, that's something you can see across uh, across europe and clearly that 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 plays into this. so anything one would say about this would be would be quite complicated, but I will say that certainly West Germany did go through a series of transformations in which the Holocaust became a central part of their awareness And it's reflected in so many different reflexes within the country, how you train military leaders, what kinds of things you tell the aspiring uh, civil servant, what's taught in school, what you commemorate, what monuments you have, uh, how the nation imagines its role in relations to its neighbors. It's it's extraordinarily present in in that sense. But right now, I don't feel like we're lacking in Holocaust memorials. We're not lacking in books. We're not lacking in novels that deal with it. We're not lacking in films that deal with it. It's it, it's in in all those respects more present than ever, but somehow, as you you know your question implies, uh, what feel like should be the central lessons of it are slipping away. And so clearly, what's happening is it's not the concrete reminders of the Holocaust per se are going, they're not. It's what we do with them that's that's changing and that's, that's troubling. And so, you know, I don't want to belittle those memorials, but right now the, the problem seems to be that they're being com- compartmentalised. They're not, uh, and the, the the lessons are not. And I say we won't all agree on the lessons. I don't want to prescribe what other people, what what conclusions other people uh, draw but I but I do think that there are some there are some basics that many of us would uh, would agree on
0: mm-hmm. now the theme of semester this year remembering and forgetting is very relevant to your work um, and especially in the class that you're going to be overseeing in the fall mm-hmm. titled history of genocide mm-hmm. um, in your class description for this course you stated that genocide is the ultimate effort to excise memory can you explain or elaborate on this perhaps in terms of the Holocaust in specific or any other genocide you believe is relevant
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think it's true not just of the Holocaust. I, I really think it's a characteristic of genocide. Because when we I think when we think about genocide there are there are two separate things that we, we we don't always distinguish. One is of course the horror of mass murder. So there's the violence, the brutality, the indiscriminateness, all those aspects of a mass targeting of uh, Of a large social group of non combatants and very often not in the anonymous way of a bomb dropped. I don't want to belittle that either, but mm-hmm. it's but this feels even more concretely horrible. But the other side of it is what's so striking about genocide is the attempt to eradicate a whole identity, in other words, and remove of people, and that means to remove all the symbols, are the memory of that people. Uh, maybe you'll have a m- museum that commemorates the fact that they've gone, but really all the, the living symbols are being removed. And, what, and, and I think one of the things that's so hard to imagine what it's like for survivors of a genocide that's been very extensive is it's not just you've been through trauma. It's not just you've lost your loved ones. It's not just you were in total fear of your life. It's also your entire world that you, of reference has gone. You know, so who are you going to speak to? What maybe even what language you're going to speak in, mm-hmm. you know, for many Yiddish speakers who came out of the Holocaust, that whole Yiddish world that 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 disappeared. Of course, it, it fragments of it continue. And now it's it's had something of a revival. Nevertheless, I do think it's a remarkable thought that you it's like, you know, a survivor from another planet, if you think about that. Uh, not only have they gone through the horrors of the destruction of the of the planet, but you know everything that their everything that their language re- refers to uh, is is no longer there, mm-hmm. and uh, and I and I think that's a sort of aspect of, of genocide that we often uh, lose sight of because we are understandably so caught up with the the horror of of, of mass murder.
0: And it's also simplistic to think about survivors as being lucky and fortunate to have gotten out, and of course they are. But also, when they do leave these situations, like you said, they're left in an alien world many times without anyone who can relate to them in a way that they're familiar with and without any concrete representation of the culture they were born in. So even though they survive, there's a much bigger and much more harrowing issue that they have to reconcile.
1: I think you're absolutely right. And of course there it varies uh, the situation that they find themselves in. I mean in the case of the Rwandan genocide, the survivors uh, very often uh, remain in their communities and so they have the challenge of pursuing a life where on every corner there's a memory of the horrors that took place on that that corner, Mm -hmm. surrounded by people who were involved in murdering uh, their family in assault, in threatening their own life, uh, in, in killing their neighbor. So there's that. So there it's how do you live a life surrounded by ghosts. Um, in the case of the holocaust, a great many of the survivors of the holocaust don't end up where they used to live. Uh, and so there it's about what kind of memories do you hold on to in a diaspora completely removed from the world that you once he once knew. Um, obviously some do return, but, but returning is hard and often even those who return don't stay where they've returned. So in the immediate aftermath of the war many uh, Polish Jews returned to Poland, but they didn't stay because it wasn't comfortable um and even threatening, and they found themselves often at conflict with people who'd uh, acquired the property they'd left behind and didn't expect them to return and those issues of property then make life uh, very hard, sometimes dangerous and they and they leave so uh it it the the different genocides shape that challenge that you talked about in different ways, but the fundamental thing you're is is absolutely right. It's a it's a it's a double challenge of having gone through gruesome events, threats and loss, and contending with a world in which everything that was home has really has really disappeared.
0: And it's it's very real to look at the concrete methods in which they live in their communities. Even today, it kinda provides an answer for why communities like Hasidic Jews in New York are so tight knit. So, prideful of their heritage, so you know, fully embodied in their religion and in their communities. It, that's one of the ways they have recovered. It seems like.
1: I I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, post-war Jewish identities in in all their manifold varieties, in different ways, bear the mark of this massive attempt at destruction. Uh, be it talking about uh, the sort of Culture and values in Israel, be it talking about tight-knit, uh, Haredi or Orthodox communities, be it talking about the sort of wider values uh, in in uh, in uh, sort of more acculturated communities, uh, and it and it takes shape in 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 different forms. Uh, there's a um, a historian called Samuel Moyne who wrote a, an interesting book about. How it about a, a book that appeared in post-war France, one of the first about the uprising uh, in Treblinka, one of the extermination camps. And one of the things that he was able to show, which was really fascinating, was that there were very different reactions amongst different sections of the uh, uh, Jewish community, depending on whether or not they their background and language. so the Yiddish speakers, many of whom were, uh, survivors from Eastern Europe and who had a very sort of concrete sense of how the Holocaust had happened uh, were often rather offended by the book because they felt it didn't quite match their experience. Whereas the uh, French-speaking uh, French Jews, many of whom were descended from generations of French Jews, read the book quite differently because they were... Uh, um, juxtaposing it with a different set of experiences. So even within the Jewish community, there's a series of different subcommunities, but they're all, I think you're absolutely right, uh, shaped in different ways by this overwhelming communal uh, experience um, of the Holocaust.
0: It's, it's fascinating to think about how it fragments like that. Mm. Um, final question. Uh, for your class in the fall, History of Genocide, is there any story, any person that you're most excited, most intrigued to talk about with your students, and you think will perhaps be the most powerful?
1: Oh, wow! You saved the most impossible question for last. I'd love to do that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> stump you right at the end. <laughs> um, no, but I will say, you know, that I have a I have a book coming out and. Uh, what that book's about is a is a group within Nazi Germany who rescued a number of Jews. And so I'm very conscious at the moment, Uh, not just of the experience of the victims, but also of the challenge that faced members of the mainstream communities who sought to go against the general policy and reach out to help their neighbours and the dilemmas that they face. And there are lots of things that one doesn't necessarily think about. For example, uh, I'll just take one example. In, uh, In Nazi Germany, where you saw thousands of German Jews being readied for deportation, then taking, taken off. Wasn't it arbitrary to help one or two? Uh, I mean, in retrospect, it seems an absurd question, uh, because anybody you could help, that was better than no help. But at the time, especially if you don't have one, a, a very strong personal connection to one person, how do you choose Um, And in fact, that can be quite sort of when you're confronted with a whole mechanism, which is targeting so many people, uh, it takes quite a lot not to be disabled uh, by the knowledge that you're barely making a dent. So I think one of the things that I'm intrigued to explore with students is the dilemmas of the uh, uh, of the potential helpers. I think it's something that we haven't thought enough about. What's what the obstacles and challenges to acting uh, in a genocidal situation Um, and of course it it varies on thousands of things do you have a house do you have a network do you have some money what's the landscape can you hide people Mm -hmm. surveillance there's a million things that affect what you can do but there are also these very psychological uh, issues that I think we haven't thought enough about so that's definitely on my on my mind at the moment
0: I think that will be very interesting, and I am looking forward for your book, looking forward to read more of your work, because I will say the book that I read, which the title escapes me.
1: I Past, in, past in Hiding.
0: Past in Hiding, um, uh, Survival and Memory in Nazi Germany. Mm. Uh, was a wonderful exercise in learning about how memory exists to this day for survivors of the, uh, the Holocaust in Germany. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Mark Roseman, for joining us in the studio here today. Uh, Dr. Roseman is overseeing a class, as I said, The History of Genocide in the Fall. Um, Thank you again.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: It's easy for us to assume that conversations like these aren't relevant to our lives. The Holocaust and similar events might seem a world away from America in the present day. But the truth is much less convenient. Right here in Bloomington, the seemingly innocuous community of the farmer's market is embroiled in a battle regarding the presence of white supremacists. And shortly after recording this interview, Dr. Mark Roseman was one of over 100 academics to write an open letter addressed to the director of the Holocaust Memorial Museum for a statement related to the political strife surrounding detention camps at the border. The letter states, in part, The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum is taking a radical position that is far removed from mainstream scholarship on the Holocaust and genocide, and it makes learning from the past almost impossible. The very core of Holocaust education is to alert the public to dangerous developments that facilitate human rights violations and pain and suffering. Pointing to similarities across time and space is essential for this task. In times like these, the memories of the past are often closer than you'd like to believe. Remembering and Forgetting is a podcast produced for Themester at IU. Special thanks to IU's College of Arts and Sciences, Tracy B., Ken Smith, and the Media School for today's episode. Music for this episode by Jack Brown. For more discussions on memory surrounding somatic dance, forms of commemoration, and more, check out the rest of Remembering and Forgetting. Thank you for listening.